transportation product and service providers turn to Publicis Sapien for digital-first, customer-centered transformation at scale. Learn how we're continuing to put innovation and data in the driver's seat at publicissapien.com auto. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. I'm Pete Bigelow, your host and reporter at the Automotive News. As I sit here recording this today, I'm probably like many of you, looking at pictures of the East Coast under a blanket of thick smoke, pictures of the Statue of Liberty with a glowing orange sky as the backdrop, and reading headlines about the, quote, worst heat wave on record hitting other parts of the world. Suffice to say, climate change is front and center on my mind. Joining me on the podcast today is Michael Barabay, the Department of Energy's Deputy Assistant Secretary for Sustainable Transportation in the Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. I want to be clear that we recorded this before the smoke below down from Canada, but it's timely nonetheless. We spend today's episode talking about the ways this administration is racing to wean all modes of transportation off fossil fuels and reducing carbon emissions. Michael brings a 30,000-foot view, and we discuss some of the immediate changes occurring, electrification, the onshoring of the battery supply chain, the build-out of charging infrastructure. We're also going to look down the road a little bit at the DOE's ongoing efforts to explore hydrogen, the role research at the national labs is playing in developing better batteries, and a whole lot more. So we've got a lot to cover. Without further ado, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Department of Energy's Michael Barabay. Michael, it's great to have you back on the Shift podcast today. Thanks for making the time. Well, thanks for having me. It's always good to be here with this group. So the last time you were here on the podcast was August 2021. And I went back to, to listen to that a little bit in anticipation of, of talking to you today. And uh, a few things have changed in the transportation and energy space. And I want to pick up the baton right where we left off with you, which was uh, at the time, DOE had just rolled out its hydrogen hub project. Maybe if you can remind us what the hydrogen hubs are and, and give us a status report on and where we are here just about two years later. Well, um, you have me at a slight disadvantage. I have not gone back to re, uh, listen to that, but I think I will just say overall, a lot, a lot of progress has been made across all of transportation since then. Uh, so go back two years ago. The infrastructure law would have just been being passed at that point in time, landmark piece of legislation that on you know, a bipartisan basis really laid out significant efforts to update our infrastructure, including our clean energy infrastructure. And part of that is hydrogen. Um, I will say, you know, as, as we'll, I'm sure, talk about, we're working towards how do we decarbonize every single mode of transportation, you know, from cars, trucks airplane, trains, uh, you know, uh, maritime, et cetera. So um, across that, we're looking for, by looking at the entire system at one time, we're able to really think about where are the optimal both energy sources and solutions that work across different pieces of the transportation sector. And we uh, absolutely do see hydrogen as a, a important part of that. Um, so for those of you listeners that, that don't know, um, hydrogen you know, has a lot of opportunities across the future clean energy economy, not just in transportation. A lot of people um, have thought about hydrogen over a number of years in the automotive industry because you know, it's been looked at and uh, thought about in automotive for both cars and trucks. Of course, Toyota has had the Mirai, a very successful hydrogen-fueled car. But when, um, when we look out to the future, we really see hydrogen playing a role in 
long haul heavy duty trucks. It, it really makes sense as a fuel source when you have places where batteries just won't work for some reason. Where And one of the challenges, for example, is if you have a really, really big class eight long haul truck, you can make a battery electric without a doubt. I mean, that the Tesla Semi is now just starting to be delivered. I'm hearing great feedback from people that have gotten early models, but it takes a long time to, to recharge that. And if you have trucks that are going really long distance across the country, fueling time becomes an issue. And literally how much space it takes, right? Because if you have a lot of trucks parked at the same time, if they have to park a long time, you need more space hydrogen fueling more quickly can work better. So that's just like one example where we see kind of centrally fueled, you have a small number of fueling stations for hydrogen where it makes sense. So to the hydrogen hubs, you asked about uh, hydrogen hubs is a $8 billion uh, initiative under the infrastructure bill to basically fund um, a number of uh, big large scale hydrogen hubs. We have asked for proposals, received those proposals, are now evaluating those. And um, once that's happened, we'll be making awards for a number of those hubs with not an exact number that's set, but you know more than just a few. Um, and the goal here is they'll be geographically dispersed as well as they'll be Really, these are demonstration projects. So some will be working on making hydrogen from clean electricity. Some will be looking at making it from fossil fuel, natural gas, like it's done today, but adding in carbon capture, for example. Some will be tied in with excess power from nuclear plants. So um, the hubs are going to actually demonstrate the ability to both make the hydrogen, transport the hydrogen, store the hydrogen, and have offtake use like heavy-duty trucks or other industrial applications as well. What is the the timetable for kind of selecting those final sites in the hydrogen hub project right now? Everyone would like them as absolutely soon as possible. There is not an exact date I can give, um, but certainly we would, uh, you know, we, we'd like them to be uh, later this year, uh, but no, no, no guarantee on timing at this point that I can give. Michael, I know there's a lot that falls within your purview at, at the Department of Energy. Tell us exactly like what your office does and, and what's under your oversight. Sure. Um, I, let me start with my core goal. Right, The goal for me and my team is really how do we achieve decarbonization across all of the transportation sector, every mode of transportation in a way that is cost-effective that works for people. So to do that, um, my team works on every type of vehicle from you know, light cars, trucks, planes, trains, ships. We work on developing new battery technology, EV charging, uh, both technology and deployment, but also hydrogen production and hydrogen fuel cells, and then all forms of um, bioenergy and really converting waste carbon, including municipal solid waste, to liquid fuels that can be used in things like airplanes called sustainable aviation fuel. And then really interesting is we just set up a new joint office between the Department of Energy and Transportation called the uh, Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. First time you have this type of uh, essentially a new group that sits between two agencies. Um, and I, um, I help uh, support and lead that from the DOE side. We hired a great guy, Gabe Klein, who's our uh, executive director running the group. Setting the stage for this a little bit, what is the DOE's kind of decarbonization blueprint and, and, you know, what all fits into that hydrogen and, and what else? Yeah. So this, uh, as I mentioned, we, we being the Department of Energy, but also um, the Department of Transportation, EPA, as well as HUD, Housing and Urban Development, we got together along with the White House and in January of this year, four, you know, four cabinet members plus the president's communist advisor announced the U.S. transportation decarbonization blueprint. And this is a... Um, 
thought out detailed strategy of how do we decarbonize all of transportation, aligning it with resource availability, aligning it with cost effectiveness, um, looking at, you know, where's the electricity come from? Because whether you're making hydrogen or doing battery electric or making biofuels that we need hydrogen, we need electricity, right? A lot of this does come back to how do we achieve 100% clean grid? So we at DOE are looking at all of these simultaneously. And, and this is a key point. By taking a systems level look and looking at the total system, both the electricity production as well as transportation, and within transportation, all the modes, we're able to develop a holistic strategy that we think makes more sense. So the goal is nothing short of 100% decarbonization across transportation by 2050. That means that in most transportation sectors, we have to be fully deployed by 2035, given fleet turnover times. Um, so, you know, light duty vehicles, a lot of work going for battery electric there, the EV charging, battery critical materials, um, managing that supply chain, managing the grid interaction. That's half of all of the, you know, CO2 in the transportation sector. Short haul trucks actually are moving the same way. Long distance heavy duty trucks, we talked about maybe are moving more towards hydrogen. Um, we think that's the right solution that works there. We are working a lot on aviation across industry groups with NASA, with FAA to really move the aviation sector towards sustainable aviation fuel. So liquid fuel made from biomass and waste carbon resources. Uh, and combined with, there's about 30% improvement in airplane efficiency that we are working towards with NASA. But part of that includes hybridization of the airplane. In the future, you're going to see some batteries in airplanes, not you know battery plugging in the airplane necessarily, maybe for small ones, but for these really big planes where actually you can add some battery boost to help optimize the uh, combustion cycle when you're at cruise, right? A little boost, so you need a little less to take off. You optimize the engine overall for, for cruise. So things like that, rail, uh, maritime are also working on new solutions. So I will say, I, I just got back from um, international meeting in Europe of all the transportation officials across the world and industry folks from all sectors as well. I would say there's pretty good alignment across globally of all these sectors of the path we need to go down. Everyone is you know, maybe diff a little different on the time frame of when they can get there, but the direction is pretty well aligned. You mentioned kind of these hybrid models. I'm curious, is battery electric competitive with hydrogen? Are they, are they complementary? A little bit of both and mixing and matching there. You know, I think what we see, and I think others, you know, in the industry as well, is that um, with the improvements in the cost and the storage capability for battery electrics, for things like light duty vehicles, it is pretty clear that battery electric is the way that the industry is going to go. And it, it just makes the more, most sense because you're starting with a clean electron. And at the end, you need to put that clean electron back into the vehicle. If you convert it to hydrogen along the way and then convert it from hydrogen back to electricity, you get a lot of conversion losses there. So if you can make the batteries work, it's just better and easier. But in some cases, hydrogen will work better where you need faster fueling, you need to have just put more energy density on by compressing that hydrogen, liquefying the hydrogen. That's what a lot of people on the heavy duty truck side are looking at in the future trucks as well. Same discussion with rail where, yes, it might make sense to do electric in some cases. Certainly cantonary lines make a lot of sense in, you know, in for certain types of things. We use it already today in a number of cases. Europe uses it extensively. Um, that might be the future for some. And then, but you maybe have a, a hydrogen-based or even a battery-based uh, locomotive that helps carry that train for the, you know, 50-mile, 100-mile spurs off of the main track, something like that. 
So I'm curious, hydrogen has always seemed to be this, you know, kind of potential energy source that that's 10 years away. And, and maybe it's been that way since the oil embargoes of the mid 70s. What makes you hopeful that it's much more commercially viable here and now, as opposed to all these previous times where it's always been around the corner, but we never quite turned that corner? You know, it, it, some could say the same with batteries 10 years ago, right? But I mean, there is a point when the cost does come down enough that it becomes viable, right? What makes me positive is we have reduced cost and durability of fuel cells. So we now are at the point where you go from like, you need new science to need engineering. And, you know, many of the people listening to this that are in auto industry can relate to this. You optimize something with cycles of engineering. The first time you do it, it, it's good. The second time, it's better. The third time, you're really getting better. We're going to start entering that phase with hydrogen fuel cells where they're commercially viable today, but we'll make them better with time. I also think that we are getting our heads around realistic infrastructure, meaning centrally fueled locations, dispersed hydrogen production. The other piece is the economics of a hydrogen fuel cell truck is getting the hydrogen cost down low enough. To do that, you need high utilization and low cost of electricity. We're now at the point where you can deploy very large renewables close to where you make hydrogen, get very low cost. We're talking you know, a cent or two per kilowatt hour type of electricity tied in. So now the economics all start coming together. So I think we've you know, there are technical things to solve and optimize, but then there are the practical side things, which now people are starting to get their heads around. Um, and the other thing I will say is, it will be not just transportation. Hydrogen will start to be used for decarbonizing things like steel production and cement, decarbonizing fertilizers, right? Mixed with ammonia. So there's a number of things that hydrogen will be used for. When you put it all together, that's when it'll really make sense. You mentioned that cost factor and maybe to, to tie a bow on the hydrogen hubs. I know the goal is to get it down to a dollar per kilogram. Uh, where are we at today? And, and is it the same for, for green hydrogen, which is obviously the, the ultimate goal? Yeah. Um, so, you know, today, I mean, right, the key is to get low greenhouse gas hydrogen. Today, just production, not the transported delivered hydrogen, but just producing it. You can do it around $2 a kilogram from steam methane reforming from natural gas, but then add costs for carbon capture on top of it. Um, we're probably closer to the $6, $7 range today. Our goal is in 2026 to get to $2. And then ultimately to $1, as you said, by 2030, 31, that 2026 will be a key point. So we need volume um, and some optimization, I think, of both to, to get it up there. I was very fortunate about a year, year and a half ago, I got to go to Los Alamos National Laboratory and see some of the work they were doing on hydrogen, which brings a question more, maybe big picture. What's the role of the national labs overall in, in driving sustainable transportation developments be that hydrogen or, or other things you're working on? Yeah, the, the, a lot of people don't necessarily know, but the U.S. national labs like Los Alamos or Oak Ridge, uh, Argonne National Lab, NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab, et cetera, are all part of the Department of Energy. There are uh, in the order of about 17 or so national labs. There's probably about six or seven that really do a lot of our transportation work. And their role is critical. I mean, the national labs have the best scientific computing facilities in the country and in the world. Um, the national labs have, uh, through the work that we funded with them, have developed the current NMC battery technology that's used today in cars and really perfected that. You know, two of the Nobel laureates for batteries uh, came out of our programs that VTO Vehicle Technology Office has funded, working with the national labs. So um, they are um, our crown jewel and. This is part of what, you know, when people ask me, like, how do we know we're going to keep making progress? 
Well, we're not standing still on things like computing power and other scientific tools and facilities. You know, the microscopes that we now have today that allow us to see in real time at the atomic level what's happening, what that translates to is like we can understand a new battery chemistry and what's working, what's not working. Maybe five or six years ago, it was like we just observed the end result. It didn't work. We didn't know why. Well, now we have better scientific tools that continue to get better every year that allow us to understand more. And that's what accelerates progress. And that's why you continue to see cost drop on some of these clean energy technologies. You've mentioned battery materials and Argonne National Laboratory. So I want to ask you about some of the work going on there in particular. They're really working to understand battery recycling. And I believe there's a, a prize or, or competition at, at sorts at play. Like what's the work going on? Uh, and why is recycling such a potentially important part of this ecosystem that's developing? Yeah, th this is a uh, a great thing to talk about. So one of the most important things when it comes to batteries is the critical minerals, right? And as we want to grow, you know, if you want to have 100% of your cars, right, to be elect battery electrified, and globally, it's not just here in the U.S., right? The amount of critical minerals we would need if you had today's technology would be astronomical. So how are we going to handle that? Two things. One is developing new battery chemistries that we continue to perfect. We've already driven down cobalt a lot. We believe there's going to be other battery chemistries that will drive down critical minerals. But then recycling, our data, and I think this has now been borne out. We've been saying this about, I don't know, four years now, but I now see a lot of other people with the same information. We think about 40% of future battery critical minerals will come from recycled batteries. I mean, that's huge, right? Because that's how you manage the future demand. To do that, we need to develop both the processes of actually recycling them. We need to develop the processes of gathering the batteries, making them safe to transport, making them inert. You hear about every time you fly in an airplane, right? There's always some comment about batteries and this and that, right? So, you know, lithium ion batteries, when you transport them, you want them to be safe. So we um, put in place called the Battery Prize about three or four years ago. And um, that was a prize to actually award people through a succession of increasing kind of dollar amounts and more competitive uh, challenges. How do you basically develop a process to collect batteries, spent batteries in a safe, low cost way? Because the number one cost of recycling a battery is actually in collecting and transporting them. So um, we actually, under the infrastructure law, there's going to be a second round of that uh, battery prize competition, which we're currently working on right now. Um, so there'll be a new round there. And we also funded a large center at Argonne National Lab called Resell, working with other national labs and working with industry partners that's developing the technology to be able to recycle a battery. And, and here's one of the key things, to really make it economical, what we want to do is we want to take a, a battery, which you know started with some maybe ore and other critical minerals in the ground, and they're extracted, they're processed, they're refined, they have things added to them. They also go into battery. Well, we don't want to take that battery and bring it back to the, the original state. We want to bring it back so that you get that those critical minerals after the processing step level. And now, if you can do that, you save all the cost and energy of getting that critical mineral to that stage. So that's how we can make the economics of batteries improve as well as get the you know, recycling itself to be economical. You mentioned NMC came out of the national labs. Is there another promising chemistry that's on the horizon or, or maybe multiple chemistries that, that you find interesting that will, that will kind of be what we're talking about in that 2035 um, range, be that solid state or something else. Yeah. Um, solid state is you hear about it a lot. It is, it's not ready for prime time in, in our mind. We think there's just, 
too many challenges, but um, semi-solid state where you have some aspect solid state, but still some liquid electrolyte in there we think is sooner. Um, there are um, lithium metal technologies. There are sodium ion technologies. Um, certainly silicon-based anodes are actually already, we're actually putting some pre-commercial funding awards out there. We're seeing some companies starting to get ready for commercialization, uh, which replaces the graphite and the anode, which is you know not that readily available on a global basis today. Um, so those are just some of the ones. So you know, think you know, sulfur, silicon, sodium, these are all very, very earth abundant, widely available minerals, right? So using those as core components in future batteries, we think are going to be key. Lithium, you know, all of those probably still have some form of lithium um, in it. So we think lithium remains a key piece. Now, the good news is there's a lot of lithium in the crust of the earth. There's a matter of getting to it and on an environmentally sound way, extracting it. But um, there are, you know, there are North American sources of lithium as well. So that we think um, will get developed more. How long does it take to kind of bring some mining operations online to provide that lithium uh, domestically? You know, it, it can vary a lot, right, based upon the, the individual project, but certainly four to five years is is not, you know, would not be unreasonable at all when you think about the time it takes, depending upon your source, uh, depending, you know, there's different ways you can get lithium out, um, liquid brines, hard rock. Uh, but we already see some significant activity of projects across North America and also South America, uh, which has a lot of existing lithium that is now produced in increasing that as well. So I think that will happen. We're going to take a short break from my conversation with Michael. When we return, we'll discuss how the Department of Energy and Department of Transportation are working ever more closely together. And Michael fills us in on his long tenure at Chrysler and how it led to the work he's doing today. We'll be right back. Transportation product and service providers turn to Publicis Sapient for digital-first, customer-centered transformation at scale. By putting innovation and data in the driver's seat, we help automotive brands and drivers get from point A to point B and beyond. From frictionless customer experiences and connected vehicle tech to EV adoption, dealership transformation, and more, we fuse agile startup methodology with established consulting expertise to help leading brands become even more competitive. To learn more about digital business transformation in the automotive industry, visit publicistsapient.com slash auto. Longtime listener of AM Radio, we at Automotive News want to hear from you. We're currently taking audio submissions for an upcoming LinkedIn Live where you, the listener, can tell us why you love AM Radio in your car, how long you've been tuning in, and if you're for or against it being completely wiped out from new vehicles in the future. Legislators have recently introduced a bill that would require AM Radio to remain in vehicles to ensure access to emergency alerts. But automakers are dumping the radio as they face pressure to eliminate costs, reduce complexity, and increase EV efficiency. Please record a voice note and send all audio submissions to ansocial at crane.com. Please be sure to include your first and last name and what location you're calling from. Again, send those to ansocial at crane.com. Now back to my conversation with Michael Barabe, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Sustainable Transportation in the Department of Energy's Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy. Michael, we mentioned Argonne National Laboratory, and uh, I want to spotlight some of the other work that they're doing there. I believe they oversee the EcoCar Electric Vehicle Challenge, which uh, just wrapped up its 
its first year of a four-year competition. Uh, what is the EcoCar Challenge and, and how does it fit into your, your energy department mission? Yeah, so I will say workforce development overall is a critical part of what we do. So, you know, obviously we're doing developing new technologies, doing uh, demonstration deployment, but as these clean energy technologies, whether it be hydrogen or, or batteries or biofuels, you know, as they get to the commercial stage, we need workers at all stages, right? We need workers that are working in the processing, in the manufacturing side of batteries or fuel cells. Um, we need uh, graduate students, um, scientists, um, engineers, et cetera. So EcoCar is a multi-year university-based program. Been around now for many years. Argonne National Lab helps run it. Uh, General Motors is the, the current um, executive sponsor along with MathWorks of that. And it basically has on the order of a dozen schools that uh, basically work together. They get uh, actual you know, car from General Motors and they basically have to work together as a team, each university, um, to basically take that car and make, in this case, a full electric car with a certain amount of automated vehicle technology um, in it. So that basically trains them to be your automotive engineers of the future in the technologies of the future as well. So um, it is, you know, I think for the automotive industry, it is a prime source of really great, well-trained engineers. Um, they come out of the program with hands-on real-world experience, um, as well as with an exposure to, from our point of view, kind of not just the technical, but all, you know, to some degree, what are the implications of what you're doing? How do you make sure when you're developing a new car, you're looking at um, the energy efficiency? How are you, you know, working together with one of the big factors is how do we put more diverse teams in place? And how do we make sure that we have diverse um, college, university students coming out of these programs as well? You mentioned um, we have the EcoCar program. We also just launched the Battery Workforce Challenge, um, which is a similar program along with Stellantis, who is um, helping us lead that to really focus specifically on the battery part. How do we develop those engineers of the future, as well as technicians at uh, a community college level that can be working across the full battery ecosystem, whether it be in the processing to get the materials that go into cells or working at uh, battery cell manufacturing plants or being the engineers working at the car companies designing essentially the future powertrains, battery-based powertrains into future electric vehicles. So we see that that's a real missing link and working at not just the college level, but also at the community college level, but also going one step earlier to, you know, really K through eight STEM level work in high school, um, K through 12 level work. In terms of EcoCar, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, and I, I will preface this by saying, I try to keep this quiet here in Southeast Michigan, but, but as a Buckeyes fan, I have to say, uh, mentioned that Ohio state won the first year of the, uh, the four-year competition just, uh, just last week. So, uh, pleased to see that. They did. They did a. They did a great job there. Um, one of the nice things about the competition is each year it kind of resets. So next year, you know, even though it's four years, it culminates with basically kind of head-to-head, -head, fully operational car on the track. Uh, each year, there's an opportunity for uh, the the top schools to be recognized for that year. So uh, yeah, they, the Buckeyes did a great job, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing what what next year brings. And then we'll be uh, into the first year of the Battery Workforce Challenge a year from now as well. In terms of that workforce development, there's a, another aspect that I think falls within the DOE purview that that's pretty interesting. Obviously, you're uh, collectively rolling out 500,000 electric vehicle chargers and in the process of doing that. Um, there was a study that came out from Cumerit just last week 
about it, a shortage of workers who, who know how to service chargers. Um, so is that part of your efforts and, and could that slow the rollout of, of this uh, big EV charging infrastructure? Uh, it is absolutely part of our effort. We, we've developed an overall electric vehicle workforce um, initiative working with actually a broad range of industry folks to look at all aspects of, of what is needed. Um, so one of those are the people, both electricians for installing EV chargers. And there's going to be the vast, vast majority of EV chargers are going to be at people's houses, right? And that will take electricians to do that. Now, in many cases, right, it's the same electrician who's doing other work at your home, but they need training on what the unique aspects is of this new technology, but also maintenance workers, as you mentioned, right? Maintenance workers to work and um, fix EV chargers like any other equipment. So we uh, actually currently have funding opportunities out through the Joint Office of uh, Energy and Transportation, um, that is a new, brand new joint office that sits between my team at the Department of Energy and then Department of Transportation to bring together the expertise of both groups. The Vehicle Technologies Office at DOE, they're all working together. They have several workforce initiatives there looking at exactly that, those types of issues. How do you provide new training programs for electricians? Uh, but I'll see you know, another one down the road. We've done a bunch of work in the past training first responders when electric vehicles and hybrids were first coming out. Um, there's now a lot more electric cars coming. A lot of those you know, people switch over. So in the future, we'll probably do some more workforce training for first responders as well. Curious, like you just mentioned, you've got this new office that sits between you and, and DOT. And you talked earlier about working with HUD and EPA kind of across the government. Obviously, your your work is ever more intertwined. Uh, how do you how do you kind of go about that uh, cross cross pollination across multiple government silos? Yeah, well, and the a key goal of the decarbonization blueprint was to really avoid having those silos. So one of the key things early on um, last year, the secretaries across the four agencies signed an MOU directing their teams to coordinate upfront early before they start their work. So each agency has expertise and, and legal mandates, right, that they need to and authorities they need to respect. But we can all talk and organize upfront and coordinate on our work and also help divide up to make sure we're not duplicating each other, make sure we're complementing each other. There are big infrastructure awards available through the infrastructure uh, law as well as the IRA, um, Inflation Reduction Act. So part of what we're doing is getting together early to talk about, okay, if um, ports is a great example, there's multiple different avenues to spend money on ports to both address clean air and energy. How do we make sure we're coordinating across the agencies and efforts like that? So it, a lot of it is, is plain old fashioned. It takes time. Um, but as even within you know, the Department of Energy, hydrogen, bioenergy, um, electrification, batteries, these groups, you know, five or six years ago, there was not a lot of deployment across them, right? So everyone was really focusing nose to the grindstone, if you will, developing the technology, lowering cost. Well, now that we're entering more of that deployment phase, there's a lot more need to be working cross-sectorially. What we're doing really is just making that a priority across you know, both our teams here at the Department of Energy, but also with leadership in the White House across all of the government agencies. Back to charging a little bit. Uh, as we mentioned, 500,000 chargers uh, that DOE is spearheading. How many have been built so far? Uh, how many are ultimately needed when you look out in the future? Uh, you know, you mentioned 2035 before. As as more EVs come come into the fleet, how many chargers do you think are are ultimately needed to serve them? 
you know, we'll be actually publishing a report very soon out of uh, NREL National Renewable Energy Lab um, to to exactly look at that. Uh, not quite out yet, uh, so I don't want to uh, pre uh, seal its thunder. But um, so five hundred thousand. You know, the president said a goal said, look, we want to have you know really at least five hundred thousand by twenty thirty. Um, I actually think we're going to exceed that when you look at the amount of investment that's been committed by the private sector in addition to the 7.5 billion that's been committed by the federal government to build out both corridors and local community charging, I think we have a shot to actually get there ahead of that 2030. Um, and I think we're gonna need more than that 500,000 by the time we do get um, get out there because the EV growth is going really well. Now it all depends on how many EVs are on the road and what the next four or five years of sales look like. But if you look at what a number of third party groups have said, um, of number of EV sales, um, it is going well. Um, you know, we'll see if it continues to grow at the current rate. But I think that the number of charges out there uh, is going to grow for private sector funding. I, I will just um, you know note as well that a lot of the charges I mentioned, you know, people think about well these long distance corridors um, and the long highways, and that certainly is important to help build the confidence that you can use your EV everywhere you want but it still will remain a small percent of the total charging. Most of the charging, 80, 85% will happen um, where people park their car overnight, usually at their house. Maybe if they park it on the curb or someplace like that, they'll need some curbside charging. You see a lot more of that starting to go in. And then um, charging in and about communities where people can do opportunity charging, where you don't always need to charge the car up 100%. You might be out and about and say, hey, I just need to uh, pick up, you know, 5 10% charge. And then tonight when I get home, I'll charge it at a lower cost, nice and slow charging. So that's really where we see it going. Um, the money on the five, so of that 500,000 chargers, there's 5 billion for corridor charging. That money goes out to states. The first, um, the first tranche of that has been distributed out to the states. The states are right now in the process of putting uh, RFPs out there getting those in and they're going to be starting to put chargers in the ground this year and then we'll see that that growth happening uh, and then every year there'll be additional parts of that 5 billion going out and there's another 2.5 billion in competitive grants the first tranche of that um, has now been put out in terms of requests for proposals we'll be getting those proposals in here uh, just in the next week or two actually and then that you know money later this year will start flowing out so I think you'll start seeing you know really you know, th late this year, but then into next year, a growth happening, right? And we need the chargers, but we don't need them all tomorrow, but we need a steady growth going. Um, and uh, I think people are going to really start seeing a tick up in visibility of chargers over the next few years, which will coincide with the tick up in the number of vehicles and models that you're going to see as well from the manufacturers. So last week, Ford and Tesla made some charging news uh, where Ford said that it's, uh, it's going to... A, be allowed to, its cars will be allowed on the Tesla supercharger network. Uh, I think it was by 2025, they're going to start building cars that um, can don't need the adapter to use the Tesla charging standard, uh, which I think they call the North American charging standard. Is there a concern as you look to build out this like national infrastructure that, that there's two charging worlds developing or two, two quote unquote standards and does that does that complicate your efforts in any way? Well, what we what we clearly want is that for consumers to have an experience where they can uh, charge their vehicle, refuel their vehicle that is as easy and seamless, and really better 
than they do today. That's our goal. Make it better than today. Home charging, pretty clear. That will be the vast majority. We want to make that really seamless and easy for folks. When you're out in the public, um, the, the good news, I think, is that Tesla earlier this year announced you know, with some uh, coordination with us that they were now going to start opening up their chargers to be able to use what's called the, the SAE, the Society of Automotive Engineers Standard Connector. Um, so they have their own you know, kind of proprietary one. Some of their stations, I'm sure, will be open just, you know, just for their customers. They've invested in that, right? And that's kind of a a perk, if you will, um, of, of buying that car. But they're opening up their stations as well so that they can be utilized by, by more customers, basically other people. Um, with this Ford deal, right, it'll just increase that population of people on both sides. I think, you know, if we have intercompatibility between them, um, then, then that's the key. Um, I know it does potentially add a little confusion for consumers out there, especially in the early days. Uh, but I think one of the things we're going to do is try to make sure that we're providing good, clear um, consumer information of what charging is out there and available that's publicly available to people. Um, and that's, in fact, one of the funding opportunities we just put out was for um, proposals from people to help us develop some of the educational material to let people know what's out there, where it is, because there is some confusion by consumers out there today of just what's available. And really, I think people think there's a lot less charging out there than there actually is. When I talk to people that actually get an electric vehicle, a lot of times one of the things they say is, there's actually more charging than I realized. And once I got used to it and understood kind of how it fit my lifestyle, it actually wasn't that bad of a problem. I have a big picture energy question for you next. Uh, just thinking about Ford and Tesla working together. Beyond that, like we've talked about some automakers who are looking at hydrogen for multiple use cases, be it light duty, heavy duty, beyond, beyond automotive. Uh, you know, Tesla acquired Solar City back in 2016. GM just rolled out its energy division, I think, late last year. So, my big picture question for you is: Are automakers becoming energy companies? And if the answer is no, do they need to be? You know, I think what you're seeing are new business models developing across the full spectrum. Um, automotive companies are clearly you know, it, they're looking at where they need to be vertically integrated or not. And, and I imagine not everyone will take the same approach. Um, many of them in the past own their own powertrain development and production, right? So is that something they're going to want to do in terms of being battery producers um, in the same way of kind of owning their own powertrain? I, I have to think the answer is yes. Um, at the same time, the industry for decades has moved to more of a a larger role of suppliers. If you go back, you know, to the seventies, right. And what was the role of suppliers versus what it is today, supplier role has grown a lot. And so is that going to remain uh, with electric vehicles in terms of the actual fueling? I think you will see, certainly you look at Tesla, right. They built up the whole fueling infrastructure um, to serve their customers. Other companies, I got to think some will do that. Some will do it in a more limited case, uh, but you're also seeing the large traditional energy companies, people like Shell, people like British, British Petroleum, they have created entire divisions focused on new energy technology, they often call it. Uh, they have, you know, British uh, Petroleum, BP, runs a large EV charging network uh, across Europe. But in the U.S., they just bought travel centers, um, which obviously is because they want to be putting some charging in there. Um, Shell has a company called Shell Recharge. It's also doing a lot on the charging side. So... We, we've hit seven or 8% of new vehicles being electric in the US. Europe's at about 20, China's a little bit more than that. At the pace we're going, we'll be at that 20% as well. When you get to 10, 20% of the automotive industry, that's a huge number. 
auto companies pretty much universally have said they're targeting 50% by 2030. Um, I think these are big, big numbers. You're going to have to see changes across the whole industry and landscape. Um, some of the existing companies, you know, will they still be here? Will they merge? Will they reform? Will there be new ones? Yeah, I think you'll see all of that as, as happens when a new industry is forming and maturing. Michael, it's probably a good time to mention that you have deep roots in the auto industry. Uh, you were an executive at Chrysler for a number of years. Uh, I'm curious how that informs your view on all the work you're doing now. And, and what was your trajectory to go from, from working at Chrysler to uh, your current position at DOE? I, I spent uh, over 20 years at, at Chrysler and Fiat Chrysler and Daimler Chrysler. I've been at DOE uh, getting close to seven years now. It has allowed me to have a perspective of how are decisions made in the automotive industry? Why are they made? Um, well, how, you know, how engineering happens, lead times, things like that. So I think it has given me a good perspective to bring over to the policy side. Um, it's helped me uh, maybe to translate at times between when I hear industry talking about things, sometimes it's misunderstood. I can sometimes translate, here's maybe what they're trying to say and vice versa. You know, government isn't always necessarily fully understood by industry. So being a little bit of a translator between the two uh, can help because look, the only way we're going to get to 100% decarbonization across transportation is if the private sector and public sector and stakeholders work together. We have to be there. Government cannot do it alone. Government has a key responsibility, but we're going to need to doing it with the support of industry and you know with the economics of lower cost technology, which you know we're driving, but industry is also helping to drive as well. So um, it is going to be a partnership. I think that's going to get us there the fastest. Michael, final question for you here, uh, and maybe I'll bring this full circle. I, I kicked this off by uh, talking about where we left off two years ago. Uh, you, you're certainly welcome to come back two years from now. And uh, I'm curious, uh, what do you think will be will be the big headlines and storylines that we'll be talking about when you're back in, in 2025 on the Shift podcast? We will be talking about the um changing consumer sentiment about charging because they're starting to see more charging in the ground and understand it. We'll be talking about how much investment has gone in in the US in battery supply chain and new battery, uh, not just the cells, but the things that go into the cells and how more of that is now coming from different parts of the world. Uh, and I think we'll be talking at that point about everyone being excited about some, I'm not sure what it will, which one it will be, but some significant new battery chemistry that they can say, boy, it seems like in another few years, this might be the way of the future and really help bring us the next dramatic cost uh, cost reduction. Great. Michael, been great having you on the podcast today. Thanks for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. All right. You heard Michael. In 2025, we'll be talking about a significant new battery chemistry, but not necessarily solid state batteries. I'm already looking forward to the follow-up in two years. Uh, but that is it for today. If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you left us a review and subscribe to the Shift Podcast at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to Michael for his time today. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week when my guests will be Terawatt Infrastructure CEO Neha Palmer. We'll see you then. <laughs>